in order to truly deal with your own mess, in order to truly deal with your distortions and the things that are going on in my life, you have to get to a mindset of taking responsibility, taking ownership, not playing the victim. Do you ever wonder if God is really working all things for your good? You know that scripture we all quote from Romans 8, when things do not look good in our lives? Today on Seek, Go, Create, we welcome R.J. Johnson, a man whose journey is a testament to this scripture. R.J., the author of God Doesn't Waste a Thing, under the pen name Luke Chance, shares the miracles he's witnessed and experienced during his seven years in prison that he served out of a 20-year sentence. Through his Not My Will Ministries, R.J. is on a mission to deliver hope to the church behind bars and educate the community about the ongoing miracles performed by God. He challenges us to look beyond the walls of prison and see the hearts yearning for redemption and love. R.J., welcome to Seek, Go, Create. My true pleasure to be here, Tim. Thank you for the invite. This is something I've had on a Bucket list since I met you, so let's do this, bro. Cool. We're going to have fun. I want to start with my question that I ask. I don't know if I asked no. you this. We met a little less than a month ago. We were introduced by a good buddy of mine, Caleb, at a networking event up in Denver. And I usually will ask what you do. So if I bump into you somewhere, I don't know if I asked that or not when we met, but if somebody asks you what you do, what do you usually tell people? And I, a mentor of mine often says that in most of our lives, we have a purpose and a paycheck. And so what I do for my paycheck right now is I do sales for an unbelievable IT company called Uncommon Solutions, get to meet a lot of great people and introduce them to a really great company. The passion, purpose is what you said in my intro. I, I try to connect hearts out in the community with hearts and souls inside of a prison. So what do I do? I try to share joy. I try to spread love and hope because I was the recipient of love, hope, grace, mercy when I felt alone, isolated, and like I didn't deserve any of those. So I try to align the Holy Spirit as often as I can. The reason that's a good answer to the question, you and I were talking about this a little bit before we hit record. It's sometimes a very superficial question. What do you do? I'm in sales. I would give a title. Yeah. I know where your heart is. You were giving me a little more of identity type things right out of the <laughs> gate there, which I like. I, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, you and I connected and connected really well. And one of the things that we do here at Seek Go Create is we love stories about redefining success. Because in our culture, in our society, in our world, there is this thought, this perception, this idea of success. And sometimes people will go through life and maybe they never have questions about it and all that. But some of us go through these experiences where we are forced to redefine or rethink it. And I believe your story that I've heard, and I haven't heard a lot of them looking forward to this conversation, really yeah. personifies that. All right. So when I start off and I say that somebody spent time in prison, someone is going to immediately want to know, okay, we need to know a little bit more about that before we start talking about all the ministry and stuff that's going on. So sure. let's just give a real quick kind of what happened and how that came to be, whatever you want to share there. And then we'll, we'll talk about the all things scripture from Romans eight that, that we started off with. That's really funny that you don't know yet how impactful and how pivotal of a moment in my life Romans 8, 28 was. You'll get a good, good chuckle out of it if we happen to wander down that road. But how I landed inside of a prison serving seven years, thankfully only seven out of a 20-year sentence was in 2012, I made the decision to sexually assault a high school student of mine. And that is the catalyst for which coming to know the Lord, going through a whole lot of transgressions, heartache, tragedy, isolation, loneliness, like all the verbs, good, bad, ugly, scary, death, threats, 
all of that stuff fell upon me because of my choice that I made. Circumstances come from my decisions. And that's what got me to where, thankfully, all things work together for good. Even when you don't see it, certainly when you don't believe it or feel it, he's still working those things out. All right, RJ, I want, I'm doing this question for the listener. I've talked to you more, but for the listener, there are some people that were extremely repulsed and turned off immediately when they heard you sexually assaulted a student. I want you to real yep. quickly tell the listener why they need to keep listening to this conversation. Yeah, it is a horrible act. It was an absolutely illegal, assaultive, wrong thing. And all sin is. I hope the listener can hang in there and get past some of their personal views of it. I'm not proud of it. I, there's, it's not like I'm standing here today trying to glorify that at all. It hurt a lot of people. But if you can hang in, hopefully you'll get the whole gist of what my mission and my purpose is now, which is to share that God is in the miracle business and he will show up in the thing that usually most people say keeps us held back or keeps us knocked down or keeps us living in shame or keeps us being afraid. That's the reason I hope you stay and listen. If you have to walk away, if you have something too close to it and you're the history or someone in your family has got, it's a little too close to home. I honor that. Seek some help. Reach out. My goal here is not to traumatize or trigger anyone. It's to point all, all of this back to Jesus in that there's redemption, there's grace, there's love, and there's always hope. Yeah, and there, there's a book and ministry and all at the end of this. God doesn't waste a thing. I guess one thing no. I'd like to do maybe is to, just for a little more context, and you can share what you want to about the any other circumstances, I, because one of the things that I know is that people listening in, myself, others are always at various levels of mindset. And you mentioned sin and people are all at various levels of sin just, you know, reaching its tentacles into our lives. And so I would really like to, again, we're all about redefining success here. And you were, had an appearance of success. Had I known you years ago, I probably sure. would have looked at you and thought, pretty cool guy, got a lot going on and all that kind of stuff. And so Whatever you're, and I know you've shared a lot of your story here. We don't want to go into a ton of things, but what can you share about those circumstances so that we can understand the mindset of RJ then, and now we can start get, get your mindset now? I think the simplest way, the biggest difference is my mindset then, one, I had no identity, certainly in the Lord, but my identity was wrapped up solely in what I believed people thought, felt, and said about me. And from that bred a life of entitlement, a life of manipulation, and a life of massive attention seeking. Every single thing was about me. How can I benefit? How can I receive a good feeling? And it was a very selfish life. Now, Lord willing, you can see that, you can hear that. People who know me can validate that and say that I choose now to live one for God and two for the person in front of me, giving them attention, giving them the honor and respect that they deserve and trying to always push into love, even when it's hard. So what was your spiritual life growing up? Did you have one? What was it? Non-existent. But I do think yeah. we, you know, we make stuff, our idols and our gods, and we yep. have choices related to that. So maybe the better question is, you already mentioned your self-serving and things like that, but uh, what was your idols and your gods growing up? Popularity, attention, things I could control. I probably made some sort of an idol. When you don't really know where to place your eyes, when you don't know what to set your beliefs on and to like firmly plant your feet into something, you just kind of grasp for things that make you feel good and comfortable in the moment. And I did that a lot with 
organizing, with trying to be the center of attention, with constantly saying yes and appeasing those people who are around me. I didn't want to deal with my own insecurities and my own lack of self-worth, but I was constantly involved in a big group of friends. And the beauty of hindsight, being able to look back now on that, you wouldn't have looked at my life and thought that's an unloved kid. I have amazing parents. They're both very loving still to this day. You wouldn't look and say that guy has no ability to communicate in public. I was very social, but deep down it's what was I seeking? I was seeking for the next friend, the friend to laugh at my joke, the friend to come over. I was seeking for something to fill that hole, which was basically like, who am I and what am I supposed to do? And so if you're constantly around friends and noise and activities and attention, you don't have to deal with your own insecurities, your own truth. The question that most people ask and hopefully are listening to here today is like, what am I called to do? What is my purpose right now within this environment? I think what's interesting, a lot of, my guess is you were, because just from meeting you, you seem like, were you an athlete in school and all that? Yep. Athlete, probably yep. pretty good athlete. Pretty chunky one. Pro probably, you could tell me if I'm right or wrong, probably part of the cool kids growing up and stuff like that. Would that be right? Yep. Yep. And you used a word earlier entitled. So I, I've noticed this some about myself. I might've been included in that group growing up and things like that. And there, there does start to creep in this thought of that maybe I get to do things that others don't. I can get away with things, different things like that. And I do notice, and this is a man problem mostly, I guess women deal with it, but we're both men, so we're going to have to talk like men, is that when it starts coming into how we deal with women, primarily the opposite sex, and porn and different things like that, we start thinking that certain things don't apply to us. And I'm guessing that that was part of the seed that kind of led to your transgression and some of the issues, correct? Yeah, that's very accurate. When you're not in the mindset to use words like honor and support and love, you try to find value in anything that's around you at the expense of who it hurts, what it does to that person, what it does to that community. And Pornography is such a massive problem in society. It's often preached from the pulpit, but it's very rarely shared or confessed from out in the seats because like your question asked earlier, what if someone's listening right now and they immediately got turned off? It's one of the few crimes that is completely done in secret. And that's not trying to get too philosophical here, but if you can keep something secret, that means you don't have to truly deal with it and certainly confess it or speak it to your brothers or sisters. And that is an issue growing up. And it's, it may start off as what you believe innocent and it's just a little bit of an issue. I learned in treatment that there's a thing called problem. What problem? Oh, that thing? Yeah, that's not a problem for me. That's a bad place to be in. There's a lot of distortions that live out of that and a lot of unhealthy, dangerous, assaultive decisions that come from that mindset. And one of the things, let me go here for, the, for a, a period of time, because I think this is something I've observed in myself and others, and especially leaders that we see in, in our culture and society today, is there's a lot of stuff going on in secret. There's a lot of stuff mm. there. And I think a lot of people feel like it's okay until they get caught. And, and then, RJ, we see these kind of odd things go on. Sometimes we have these people yeah. that give these canned speeches of apology, whatever. And a lot of this is in the political realm and things like that. But I am sure that there are phases to that process. And so here's the question that I have for you. I mean, I think there's 
the I got caught, and then there's the uh oh, there could be repercussions, and then there's the what am I going to do to limit the damage? I'm walking through different things just to give you some things you could pull from. And then, and I'm not sure that everybody gets to this place, there is what we would term in our spiritual walk, a repentance, an actual turning away from something. Walk me through, again, I told you when we started, I'd like to get into your mindset here about where you went through that process, because when you got caught, when it was found out, were was it like, oh no, I'm repenting? Or was there all of a sudden bars, you hear the sound of the bars closing, it's like, ooh, now? Or is it still working through it? Walk walk through a little bit of those phases, because I think that entitlement that we talked about earlier, RJ, I think the, the way we think about ourselves and things like that, I think it impacts how quickly we maybe repent. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a Super deep question, one I have not been asked. The quick answer, as I look at the clock to see how quick actually this will be, no. is I didn't know I didn't know the word repentance for a long time. So that certainly didn't filter into any part of my vocabulary or my mindset. But I've learned since then that in order to truly deal with your own mess, in order to truly deal with your distortions and the things that are going on in my life, you have to get to a mindset of taking responsibility, taking ownership, not playing the victim, not saying this happened, but I would like to have nothing but good things come my way. And so I'm trying to choose my words to where it's not so therapized and people who are listening can hear this. It's I found so often that people want to be judged off of their best intentions but they want to judge others by their worst moments. And so doing that for myself, even like going through and making a list of all the things that I did that were good and all the things that I did that were trying to help others, like that's what you should be judging me off of. Because if we get into the parts that were really difficult inside of prison for me, a lot of it was when I was getting people coming at me, judging me, threatening me asking me questions. Well, Tim, I, for the first 18, 24 months, if not longer, I wanted zero things to do with telling the truth to random people who came across my path. It wasn't until I ran into a couple of my mentors that said one of the most powerful things ever to me. And you know what, Tim, I didn't even respond to it how I was supposed to for another two years. And he said, RJ, the power is in the secret. You keeping this a secret is feeding into the fear of what will actually happen if you're honest, if you take responsibility, if you choose to give this to God and let him work this out. You're choosing, I don't trust that. I trust him with all these other things, but I don't trust him with sharing my truth which is feeding right into to Satan saying, yeah, go ahead, see what happens. Tell the truth. Watch how these people turn on you. Watch how they try to kill you again. Watch how every person that you think loves you runs away. And so it was a long walk and it wasn't until I was truly able to sit back, look at my decisions, my choices, my distortions, and start aligning it with what do I say about myself versus what does God say about me? That's when you can start to deal with repentance for me. That's when I could start to deal with feelings versus truth. And Chaplain Matt always does this. Feelings do this. They go back and forth constantly. The truth The Bible, what God says is here. It doesn't change. So you take that feeling and you bring it to truth. The feeling, if I actually tell Tim today, here in 2023, what I actually did, he's going to turn this podcast off and we're going to lose a friendship. The truth is I am loved. I am covered. 
and God has only good things for me. He's going to bring great things into my path. That was impactful, but it still wasn't like life's easy. No more feelings issues. It, it's been a walk, man. And it's taken a lot of great friends to come alongside and be like, what's that? What's that feeling we're living in right now? What is the truth about your situation? And how can we deal with that and align that to God's word? Yeah, the interesting thing is when you walk through that, that if I tell Tim what happened, but yet that's that journey is what attracted me for us to have this conversation. And it totally, up. we're at a networking event about business. And after two questions, we're talking about me sexually assaulting someone. And I made the decision like year six and a half, 6.75, that I'm going to choose to live focusing on three words. Yeah. Being transparent, being vulnerable, and being intentional. Well, that means you're going to have to lay out your truth and trust that what's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to say something right here because I actually am seeing the video and I actually saw myself smiling when you brought up sexually assaulting. And I want to tell people that we are in no way attempting to be insensitive to the crime. And we'll call it that. We're attempting to have conversation about uh, the person that initiated the crime and what they can do to get to a place that's beyond that and miracles. We're going to talk about that here shortly, but yep. RJ, one other, one other quick thing, and then we'll move along and fast forward and get you into prison so that we can talk about some things that happened there. <laughs> um, and again, my, please don't, my sense of humor, people that listen in know I am in no way making light of the situation. I'm actually attempting to soften a very serious situation. So please give me a little bit of grace. My, my, Regular listeners, I think we'll will definitely do that. But uh, RJ, Elizabeth, I think Kubler Ross, in going through the stages of grief, and you may have done this when you went through therapy and things like that, talks about the different stages. There's denial, and then there's different things like that. My guess is, and you know, you can kind of say yay or nay. My guess is is when this initially uh, came to a head that you possibly blamed others, uh, you know, your, your spouse, the victim and all that. And I want to bring that up here for a specific reason. So is that, was that in the realm when you first got caught? I'll say, is that okay to say? Yeah, I don't have the words to explain like the amount of fear that was washing over me of what my choices are going to actually lead to leads to a ton of wrong negative, unhealthy thinking. Anybody other than myself, I want to point to and try to act like they had a role to play in it. But the bottom line is it was me. And that's, that's a pretty crappy place to be when you're scrounging for anything. But the only thing you can deal with when you're in an eight by eight cell and the first time those bars close is, oh, I'm here because of what I chose to do nobody else. You don't land there right away. If someone does that right away, amen, power to you. You're going to, you're an awfully long ways further than I was day one. So let's move along here and transgression crime occurred. You are caught, you go to prison and you're in the, you're in the prison system and there are yeah. a lot of people listening in. We've actually interviewed about three or four people that have been to prison, interviewed one that I might even link to this. It's a fascinating conversation with Quan Hung that actually shot and killed someone and went through the prison system and then was released. And so Amen. fascinating story with some similar themes that's very interesting. But so you're in the prison system and definitely not a fun thing, I'm sure. So what do you want to, what do you want to tell people about that, that really have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about being behind bars? Yeah, it, there were some really fun times. Like I'm again, not making light of it, brutal truths. And there's some terrible evenings. I often say, I don't want to spend another night in prison, but I am always excited to go back in. And one of the most real moments, themes in my life was 
almost without fail, anybody I speak to in there, if you ask him like, what was your life like before this? You start mentioning or naming things, items in your life. I had a big house. I had multiple cars. I made this much money. My wife was this. My career was this. My friend circle. When you go to prison, everybody's put on a level playing field. You get the same three in Colorado, green shirts and green pants, a few white undershirts. You get the same garbagey boots, the same food and the same pay until you kind of get further in your sentence and you can get different jobs. When everything is level, that's why they take your name. You're a number. Now it's pretty apparent, like we've got to do some identity work. We've got to figure out who are we when there are no jobs or accolations or rounds of applause or coaching wins or 6,000 square feet or who are you now and what are you going to do? And Tim, I've had hands down the best times in my life in prison when I was working as a prison chaplain's assistant for 87 cents a day. It's quite a ways into the story. It took me a minute to get there. But my purpose was so clear to me to love the person who came through the door, to not focus on me, to without a doubt focus on, and I call it in the book, me three, God first, the person in front of me second, me three, I'm third. That lines up with a lot of joy. That lines up with what God's called us to do, to be there for your brothers, iron sharpens iron, what you're doing right now. It's what you do every day with your podcast. You help people seek who they are, go and find who your identity is and who says it is about you, then create an amazing life for those around you. I love it. I love the idea of what you do. And so in prison to go there, my first three days, I had a group of Nazis try to kill me because of what my crime was. They found out. They said, you're not welcome in this room. And my choice was to deal with option A, fight all the time until I quit or die, or B, go run and tell the cops I can't deal with this. It's called checking in. Did that within the first three days, man. And I got 240 months left. I get to another prison and I make it six months before my crime comes out once again. And this time I was pulled out of my cell and I later learned this under an hour before an actual murder attempt was going to take place. And I've done nothing to these guys other than I chose to do what I did in 2012. And in prison, there's an ironically weird hierarchy of at least I'm better than that guy which keeps you from wanting to share your truth when even when people find out what you've done ish, they want to kill you. No, that's not okay. That's not ideal. But the book's called God doesn't waste a thing. I didn't know God. I had no idea. I was that selfish person. Like, why are you guys doing this stuff to me? I didn't do anything to you. Blaming other people, being the victim. Well, God, even if you don't, ever say the name God, he's still working and loving and creating an unbelievable masterpiece for your life to play itself into. And that was what was cool was those two murder attempts, not fun, terrible for me, terrible for my family, is what God used to get me to the prison where I met mentors of my life, gave my life to the Lord and found my purpose. And that's where a lot of these miracles show up where it's, this is the coolest thing ever, Tim. Not happy for what I did to get here, but I'm here. And what can we do to love and share and encourage those right now in the middle of this pain, in the middle of this shame, in the middle of this tragedy? That's the really cool part. I just shared that this morning at a, at a men's group of most people, if we can just fix this one thing about my life, then all be able to do something. God shows up in that thing and begins to create his masterpiece. God showed up in the prison. It wasn't, when I get out of here, we'll start to paint a beautiful future. No, no. It was in the darkness where he shows up. He's in the fire. He's there. Right. RJ, what is up 
with the pecking order for crime, or I'll even get, I'll jump out to church world. What is up with the pecking order for sin? What, yeah. why is it that, and maybe we can contrast those two because it's, it's interesting. That came to my mind is when I was about to ask you, why is it that a group of Nazis that if we saw their rap sheets and what they were there for, <laughs> but yet, and listen, again, we're not making light of any crime, but What is up with that pecking order? And why is it that even as Christians, many people that are in religious circles, why is it that they will say that this sin holds a worse penalty or whatever than other when it's all sin? What are your thoughts? Maturity is required to get to what you just said at the end. You must get to a place where you recognize that he went to that cross for all sin, not for some, all. He died for the smallest sin to the largest sin. I do not like the word religion because it does that. It starts to compare and separate relationship. I say I'm a Christ follower. To be able to parallel the two, like why is there this weird pecking order in prison? It's because when you're in a position where the rest of society has said, you are so awful, you are so dangerous, disgusting, scary, not wanted, unusable, devalued, that we're going to throw you into a compound behind multiple barbed wire fences, some kill fences. How are you supposed to feel about yourself? That's why the ministry that I've created is in place. It's to let them know inside you have value. You have a purpose. You are loved and you are love. If you don't have that mindset, if you're still living, dealing every morning with your own shame and your own guilt and feeling like, well, I don't want to deal with my crap because that's just too scary and too real. And I'll have to come face to face with my truth and my identity. So I'm going to instead, at least I'm not that guy. Church mindset. I may have my secret sin over here, but at least I'm not coming in here hungover drunk with two different shoes on. At least I'm not that. In prison, it's that mindset. Murderers, well, at least I didn't hurt a child. Thieves, at least I didn't sell drugs that killed someone. It's hilariously stupid. Bro, we're all in this together. None of us are walking out of the front door today. They're not giving us keys and they're not giving us any access to make a decision other than what can we do in our circle right now? But yet they feel I'm above that guy. I'm better than that. Pretty stupid behind bars. And it's actually pretty stupid on this side of the bars also. When people do that, but yet we see people doing it other time. One other, one other just maybe prison question before we get to uh, a conversion that occurred. I want to hear that story a little bit and dig on that. But I, I, I think when I've talked to people that have been in situations like, like behind bars, and I also think about our modern culture with, I can't point to them, you know, we're on devices and we've got all these things coming at us. To me at times, it seems as if, and you said a little bit of it, you gave some glimpses of it. There is some degree of simplicity. You don't have a lot of choices. You're boxed in, literally, figuratively, a lot of ways. So talk about the comparison between the world, and I think this is causes challenges for people that come out of those systems too, is that all of a sudden, it's like there are choices. We were talking earlier about, you know, how some men can be on their phone and there's so many temptations and all theirs, like, Probably didn't have that when you were behind bars. Talk a little bit about that contrast between the limited choices and now the unlimited choices that one faces when they're outside of that environment. Sure. And I am certainly no expert on eliminating lust, distractions, sinful opportunity. I am as struggling as the man beside me. But When it does get broken down, once I was able to come and give my life to the Lord after witnessing some of these miracles and truly feeling what it is that God is 
yearning for me to walk in, it breaks it down to, is this, if I make this choice, is this going to be honoring and uplifting and loving for God and those around me? Or is this going to be separating me from the Lord, my family, my mom, my dad, my nephew, my brother? And because of that, like that decision can still be equated in society. Every single choice has a reaction. Every intent does not align with the impact that it's had. That changed the way I tried to think about each and every day. And I fell, I struggled, but it was cool because the more I learned and walked and witnessed and tasted and experienced the glory of God and his great mercy and grace, the more quickly I came out of my own quote unquote prison cell. Like I was in a prison, but I would go and lock myself up because of a feeling I was having or a reaction. It isn't until you're able to identify those are not my truths. I'm going to let myself out and go live in the freedom, live in the glory, live in the victory. We are more than conquerors. That's not day one of your walk with the Lord. It, it's a growth process for sure. And so you're behind bars, you're going through the process, you've got all of these things occurring. Obviously, now that you look back on it, there were miracles occurring. But at yeah. some point, either your heart was softened or you interacted with someone or something occurred is probably a long process. But tell me about sure. the point where you now look to as the turning point that you say that, and it may have been a longer process. It may not have been a day, minute, second, but what happened there? And, and I think that's going to lead us into the conversation of now why you go back in. There was the multiple death threats and there were a few circumstances and situations. And I said, I was so blessed and joyful to be able to go to territorial prison, the second oldest prison in the entire United States. It was when it was the Louisiana Purchase Territorials Prison. I didn't want to go there because after the second death threat, I actually was begging the state of Colorado to put me in protective custody for 20 years. I was stuck in a hole. They're trying to figure out what to do with me, how to hide me, how to keep me safe and figure out where can we possibly put this guy? He's clearly not being successful at these prisons. During that, I grew a really big beard because they wouldn't give me a razor. I went to a hearing and asked them, will you hide me for the next 19 and a half years? And the lady who was in charge of this hearing looked at my beard and says, your beard is a wonderful disguise. And I notice here that you have a master's degree in education and math. I'm like, why are we talking about facial hair and mathematics? Like people are trying to kill me, lady. Can I go hide? And she's like, I think with this disguise and your math education, you could go to this prison and no one will know who you are when my name is on my shirt, Tim. And I'm probably going to shave and you can go and help people get their GED. That's the funny part of the title of the book. I didn't get my way. Thank God. There's so many times in our lives where we're like, God, this is what we need. This is what I know is best. I didn't even know God, but at that moment, I'm telling these professionals, I know what's best. Send me to the hole until 2032, Tim. I asked to go sit alone until 2032. It's 2023. I would still be sitting there if I got what I wanted, but God doesn't waste a woman who made a decision based off facial hair. So once I got to territorial, still don't know the Lord. I wander into the chapel. I rattle off about an hour's worth of why God is not real. And if he is, he's certainly not just, and he's not kind. And probably a lot of really stupid words that I can't or wouldn't want to repeat. And this chaplain had me turn to Job. And this was the first time, chapter 38, where basically God's like, you done talking, Job? Let me have the microphone for a bit. Where were you when I did? And he just explains his almighty power, the way that he speaks things into existence. And something kind of clicked like, oh, it's not about me. And that led to an introduction to Chaplain Matt, who this shouldn't be glanced over. Matt was a volunteer for 18, 19 years to go into prisons and share the gospel. But more than that, 
he was the first guy since being locked up that I sat down with, told him the truth of what I've done. He didn't judge. He didn't make me feel worse. He didn't give me a thousand things I need to do. He did nothing but listen, ask great questions, listen again. And then he came back the next day and the next day. What would make a man do that, Tim? It's living how God is calling us to live. Love those in prison. Love those despite their worst behaviors. Love those in the middle of their chaos. And so I'm witnessing the Holy Spirit. I'm hearing the truth. I'm seeing the fruits of it. And as I'm talking about this and taking responsibility for my crime, finding freedom and the difference of shame of, I am such a terrible person to guilt. I did such a terrible thing different. I still have value. Being able to learn that and experience that and have that mind shift of, I went from not even knowing the name God and wanting to be there, but thankfully a beard got me there to now I have a whole new purpose for my life. I'm making 87 cents a day, like I said earlier, and I'm super happy. I'm excited every day to run down to the chapel to see what God is going to bring to me and who is going to walk in and how can I just show up for them. But then I started watching these miracles happen around me, Tim. Every Friday in the chapel, the Muslims would have their service. I was responsible for setting up services for the entire prison. So that's why it's funny when people in the community are like, I don't go to that church because they don't believe in this thing. In prison, Muslims, Asatrus, pagans, Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, Mormons, uh, the list goes on and on, all have to worship in the same chapel. So their request was on Friday afternoons that the Christians leave and we cover the cross. Hard for me to do. I just understood what the cross means. Like it is, it's very important to me. And I'm like, I don't want to cover this, but I have begun praying and I could hear the Holy Spirit say, I'm not on that cross. And you can cover it all you want. I'm still in this building. So what I was called to do was to love those around me. And for me, that meant I'm not supposed to convince these Muslims to worship my God and to worship my way. I'm supposed to create the most loving, comfortable, and relaxing environment for them to worship how they believe they should, which was a cool dichotomy from everything was supposed to be about me. But here's the first real cool miracle. We would go down every Friday to give them their privacy, and we'd go sing to the men who are serving their prison sentences in the dementia pod, men who have Alzheimer's, early onset dementia. And there was a man down there named Mr. Green. He was one of the most brilliant lawyers in the state of Colorado. And he was one of the most brilliant prison lawyers when he was locked up. But he had all but forgotten every single thing in his life but two things how to rub his stomach and pat his head. That's all he did all day. Tim, for three years, this man never spoke a word. Nothing. And I would go down there every Friday and I'd lean in. I'd be like, hey, Mr. Green, we're going to sing again. Just want to let you know I love you. Next week, same thing. Next week, same thing. One of these weeks, I lean down and say the exact same thing. Mr. Green, I love you, my man. And the nurse goes, why do you do that? I go, why do I do what? She goes, why do you talk to him? He doesn't know what you're saying. He doesn't know his name and he's certainly not going to talk back to you. There's nothing on up there. I said, I guess I just love him. And we went and started singing. Tim, in the middle of us singing, as we normally do, a couple of chaplains, me and another guy who's serving his life sentence, we start singing Amazing Grace. And out of the corner of my eye, I see tears coming down Mr. Green's face. And he is singing out loud every word to Amazing Grace. Tim, I've been a Christian for less than four or five months. I'm bawling. He's bawling. All of us are like, this guy doesn't even talk. You said he doesn't even know his name, but now he can recite every word to Amazing Grace. And the coolest part of this, that nurse came up and was just standing there watching with mouth wide open. And afterwards, he never spoke again, went right back to patting his head and rubbing his stomach. And she looked at us and said, what was that? 
and I'm just a smart aleck. I go, yeah, what was it? Did you give him different carrots? Did you give him different medicine? Is it just a lucky day? And she goes, no, seriously, what was that? And Chaplain Matt goes, what do you think it is? And she said, was that God? And he goes, and this is the most brilliant question ever, Tim. You can take it from him. He'll be honored. He looked at her and said, yes, but the more important piece of that is, what are you going to do with it? Tim, you can't witness that miracle and then be like, well, that was a good day for Mr. Green. You make a decision. Tim, she accepted the Lord into her heart and life that day. So why is the book called God Doesn't Waste a Thing? He didn't waste a beard to get me there because that's what brought me to come to know the Lord. He didn't waste over three years of silence for his first words to change her eternal future. And I have stories upon stories, and I know we have not much time, of God showing up in these mighty miracles. And that's my passion is people in the community chalk it up to good doctors, and he's lucky, and he's rich. When you have, like I said, the same clothes, the same outfit, the same food, you can point right where it's supposed to be given praise to, and that's to God. That's a, I love the story of that because I saw something similar with my dad who a little less than a year ago passed away with dementia that he, you know, mentally there were not things there, but yet some music and song and uh, some church things were able to pierce through. And the thing that I want to ask here, RJ, is that sounds like within a few months you went from not knowing the Lord to knowing the Lord and then serving the Lord. I think a lot of people move into the knowing the Lord and they never move into serving the Lord, or maybe they do in their own way and we can't see it. I'm not judging that, but a lot of people, it's still about them and they all of a sudden, they don't really turn and focus on others. Was that something that Pastor or Chaplain Matt encourage you to do? Did you do it automatically? Was it just something snapped and you did it or you didn't have anything else to do? You're in prison. Why not just set up chairs <laughs> for the Muslim service? What was the catalyst that moved you from not knowing the Lord, knowing the Lord, and then doing work for the Lord? Teed up an opportunity for me to talk about one of the heroes in my life. His name was Mike Freeman. He did 27 years straight in prison. Used to be one of those hardcore white boy, Nazi, problematic, hateful, especially towards sex offenders. He became one of my best friends before he passed away inside. And after about two years of me walking and talking and learning and loving the Bible and God and Jesus and understanding the Holy Spirit. So I want to give Chaplain Matt and Chaplain Troy and Chaplain Abner, all people who are addressing the book, a lot of credit. Yeah, they encouraged me to love others. But there was a specific night where Mike Freeman comes and he goes, RJ, who do you say Jesus is? And I'm like, oh, I got this. Because keep in mind, about 18 months to two years before, I didn't even know there was a New and Old Testament. Like, I was not aware. So I'm like, I got this answer. I go, easy. Jesus is my savior. Boom, mic drop. And he looked at me and goes, that's true. Is that all he is? And I was like, I missed. What, where'd I miss? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, have you made Jesus your Lord yet? Have you made a Lordship decision? I go, what does that mean? He goes, here's the simplest way I can explain it. He goes, when you claim and say that Jesus is your savior, you are going home. You are going to heaven. That impacts one person. You are saved. But when you choose to identify him as your Lord, now you're choosing to follow him, to listen to him, to love those around you as if you were him. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I was trying to love those like Jesus would. When you make him your Lord, that impacts everyone around you. Savior decision, one person, you're going to heaven. Lordship decision, watch the entire environment around you change. That was pivotal for me. And he made it so simple. There wasn't some really ridiculous hard 15 scriptures to go read and do these 1500 things. And it's that simple. 
Lord and Savior, that's when I began truly saying, okay, how am I going to energize, love, transform, support, share hope, encourage all these men that are around me now and presently that are still inside hearing from the guards? You're nothing but a blank. You're worthless. You're in here because no one loves you. Society can't even stand to look at you. Uh, those are all false. That's all false. You're exactly where God has you for the moment. And let's find what your purpose is while you're there. Did you start writing the book while you were behind bars or did you do that later? When did that process start? I did that once I got out. Because I would have never used the phrase, God doesn't waste a thing. Because even in the midst of experiencing these miracles, I wasn't like, I'm so happy that I grew that beard and she used that to bring me here because now I've just got to witness this miracle. I wasn't intelligent enough and I wasn't mature enough to witness what was still going on. But once I got out and was able to look back and honestly, the thing that released me 13 years early was the exact same thing that almost got me killed in the second murder attempt. Identical thing. It's in the book. When I got put back in the media and able to step back and go like, why am I here? Oh, it's like the story of Joseph, who I love and can relate to. Everywhere he went, God was with him. And at the very end, after his father had died and all of his brothers are like, oh no, we're in for it now. He's going to kill us because we chucked him in the pit and we sold him. And Joseph looked at him and said, bless you. What all y'all intended for evil, God used for good. That was the moment I'm like, I need to start putting these things down in the book because so many people in society, in prison, in churches are in the middle of their thing that they would say, this is evil. People are spreading rumors about me. I'm in the middle of my sin. I'm sitting in a prison cell. I'm about to get divorced. I just had a son who just told me blank. That's the moment where God's like, I can play in this game right now. If it looks impossible, God's going to sub himself in. That's when I started writing the book. So obviously released early. Yep. And 2020, right in the middle of COVID. Right in the middle of COVID. What was that like as you exited the prison system? The weirdest part that I don't often share is I got released May 27th of 2020. May 26th at 9 p.m., I was considered to be so dangerous that I had to stand for count as normal, and I was only allowed to use a plastic spork and I'm locking down in a cell. But somehow, Tim, eight hours later, according to society in the prison system, praise God I got out. But now I'm walking free. I'm going to Walmart. I can go to Applebee's or I can go to Outback and I can use a fork or a knife. And I'm the same person, but I'm not as dangerous or as scary. It's the weirdest mindset of like seven years I couldn't use anything but a toothbrush this big because it can't be made into a shank. Now I can go to Ace Hardware and buy garden shears that are this long. There was a lot of things that had changed. There was no use your phone, tap to pay. There was no Uber and Lyft. And there, now dudes are wearing masks and girls are wearing masks. It's, why did I come out here to? It almost felt safer inside. But... It was a good and very pleasant struggle to reassimilate. I always had great support. Like I said earlier, great family who was there to always love and support and encourage me. But there were definitely times where, like my first trip to Walmart, was it didn't go well. Way too many people and people reaching across and choo -choo. I'm used to prison where the number one rule is be respectful. You reach across someone in prison, you might, if you're lucky, get a, hey, what are you doing? Most often you're going to get a shove or a fight because you just disrespected someone. Walmart's not the most respectful place, Tim. I'm yeah. not super excited about my visits to Walmart and Costco. I did this last week and things like that too. What about, all right, you're, obviously your identity changed while you were 
in prison. Was there any impact on your identity as you exited because of the change in the surrounding circumstances, et cetera? You said some things just then, but any anything go on with your identity when all of a sudden you're hardened criminal you know, using a spork and then all of a sudden now society considers you a-okay here you go here's knives and probably no weapons i'm guessing but you know here's here's no. whatever here's whatever you can get that would be any identity issues you you dealt with when you were released i can honestly say no because of the hard times diving into the bible and the hours upon hours of sitting in that chapel like that was my job from 7 a.m till 8 p.m to be around chaplains and believers to really be able to pound in me and believe in my heart i am exactly what this bible says about me i was made in the image of god i don't wake up every morning like oh i'm such an image of god today i can't wait to go and share this with everybody but i wake up knowing the truth that I chose to do something, but that doesn't get to define me for the rest of my life. Others may choose to do that. I still have issues with people in society, like not being able to get past having to register and not being able to hear. I could read off what the Powerball numbers are going to be tomorrow night. And there'd be some people like, I don't want to hear a word you have to say, because no matter what you say, it's coming out of the mouths of a sex offender. I don't get to choose how they respond to my truth. I don't get to choose how they respond to my words and if I love them. All I can do is share and love and encourage. And it's hard to like let their reaction go. And there's been some not so great reunions, but there's been some absolutely wonderful ones. And I don't give this man enough credit. One of my greatest friends, mentors in my life. He's a couple of years younger than me. His name's Brett. He never lost support for me. He never chose to judge me or shame me. And when I got out of prison, he introduced me to the majority of my great friends right now who are in a men's group that I'm so honored and proud to be a part of. Had he not done that, I don't know where my life would be right now because what he chose to do was to say, that's scary, Tim. If you think of your most inner circle, are you going to walk in someone they don't know and be like, hey, this guy just got out of prison. This was the crime he did. I love him, but how about you guys accept him in? He and I had over 30 years of history, but that group is walking and talking and living and trying to follow the Lord. So they respond in kind. Like, you are not what other people say about you. You are what we believe the Bible says about you. That's really impactful to have a friend like that who's willing to not just be like, I love you in secret, but to stand on a rooftop and be like, hey, this guy, this is my guy. And even though he chose to do what he did, I love him. That's changed my perspective of how I can help all my friends who get out. Not be like, I liked you inside, but now that I'm out here, I got a, I got an agenda. I got my own image to protect, so I got to push you away. Now, I, one of my best friends is serving a life sentence for murder. And he's probably the kindest, nicest, easily the funniest person I've ever had in my life. And the really cool part of the book, he edited it. And did better than most professionals ever could. And actually heard that from the publisher. They're like, who'd you have edit this? I go, a guy serving life in prison. They're like, dude, he nailed it. All the commas, all the punctuation, everything was grammatically, it was so easy for us. I'm like, praise God. It shows a lot of maturity from your buddy that he obviously is comfortable in who he is, that he would introduce oh, yeah. you and connect you. And I think it's fascinating. I think the, there's a great lesson in understanding Sabbath rest, being just where we need to be as best we can, regardless of circumstances, what society, culture, other people say about us. When you exited, that was very powerful. RJ, society calls you a sex 
Sex offender. Yeah. Society calls you a sex offender. Scripture says that you've been forgiven and washed of your sins. Do you truly believe that you've been forgiven of the sins that you've committed? Yes. Like, I know you're probably wanting more context to that, but yes, no question. And one of my favorite things to share with a lot of the guys who don't know the Lord that are sitting in prison, like, yeah, he can forgive you because you didn't kill someone or you didn't do this to 50 people. Or if you remember Jesus on the cross, he's got his two dudes beside him. And one's rattling off, hey, if you're really who you think you are, why don't you get us off of here? At least yourself, bro. And the other one was like, don't you understand what's going on here? And he says, hey, I, I'm confessing who you are. You must be the Lord. Romans 10, 9, believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, hey, man, before I forgive you and allow you to come in to paradise with me, what, what did you do? What? Oh. Sorry about that. Yep. Good luck hanging here. He forgives all sins. All. Amen. My follow-up question, this is a little bit of an audible. I usually would have a different question as I wrap up. But RJ, I would love for you to, some people may be watching this via video. Some people may be listening in on the audio, but I would love for you to just look into your camera, speak into the mic to anyone that I don't know if they are where you were before the crime, or they may be in a situation that you were during your incarceration before you met the Lord. They may be in a situation even after that. Whatever the Holy Spirit puts on your heart, just take a minute. And just speak mm. directly to someone that has listened into this entire conversation and minister something to them before I put some as much of a bow as I can on this on this conversation. Thank you for that opportunity. What I didn't share to whoever it is that's watching, looking, listening, my story started with me laying on the train tracks trying to kill myself. Before I got sentenced to prison, I knew I was going to end up there and didn't think I could deal with that circumstance. There were several tracks that were at this location that I went and hid my car and laid on. And it was late at night and my dad drove trains his entire life. And I know if you can't see one, you can hear one. And if you can't hear one, you can feel it. And so I felt the tracks and I knew which track that train was coming on. I laid on it, neck on the rail because I felt alone. I felt isolated. I felt hopeless. This was the only way out. Called mom, dad, brother, best friend and said, Hey, I'm going to kill myself. I did something I can't even deal with. Love you. Bye. The track that I was on, thankfully was the wrong track. And the train went by beside me and I'm going to land this plane, but this is really important. I drove around the city of Denver for four hours because I was afraid to go home. I was afraid thinking the cops were going to be there and I'm going to have to walk in this circumstance, this punishment. When I about ran out of gas, I drove home and my parents lived five hours away from me. Four hours. I walked in to my apartment and I took the first step in thinking the cops are going to be in there. And sprinting out of my bedroom in the back was my dad, who was at home four and a half hours ago or four hours when I called him and said, I'm going to kill myself. And he's crying. And I'm not a believer. And I didn't understand this until I finished writing my book. I looked at him and I go, what are you doing here? And he put his arms out. And he said, I didn't know what else to do. I said, dad, I called you and told you I was going to kill myself. What was your plan? He goes, I didn't have one. I go, why'd you come here? He, and he said this. And in 2012, this didn't make any sense to me. He said, I promised your mother and God that I was going to take care of you and your brother until the day that I died. So when you called, I came. I said, what? He goes, you called, I came. 
and his arms were out. He didn't yell at me. He didn't tell me to apologize or to do a thousand things. He put his arms out. And as a 30-year-old, I ran into him and hugged him and fell asleep in his arms scared and then went to the police station the next day. Here's the thing I'm telling the person listening. That's the perfect representation of what Jesus does. It's in the Bible called the prodigal son story. We might be in the middle of our pain, in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your fear, in the middle of your circumstance that you cannot deal with and you're feeling alone, you're feeling isolated, hopeless, scared, full of fear. God is already standing there with his arms out. He's already come. All you need to do is call and go. And that is the thing I can share the most. In the middle of what you're going through, he's already there. He's not going to waste it. Thank you, Tim, for letting me share that. Thank you, RJ. RJ, where can people find God Doesn't Waste a Thing and give your ministry website and all if they want to support because you're going back into prisons yep. and you're able to go back in there and share this message and minister there. Uh, give just a little bit of where people can find it. We'll include it down in the notes and then I'll wrap up. Awesome. Yeah. NotMyWillMinistries.com is the ministry website. You can see some of my testimony of a couple of the places I've spoken with and a couple of the churches that I've stopped and shared what the Lord has done in my life. There's links to have me come and speak at your men's group, at your church. I'd love to do that. I'd be honored to be welcomed in anybody's community. You can find the book on there. You can. There's links to go to my publisher. There's links to go to Amazon. Like you said, it's God Doesn't Waste a Thing by the pen name Luke Chance, which Chaplain Troy, his two sons' names are Chance and Luke. So it was an awesome way for me to give honor to him coming in and loving me when very few would. A goal of mine is to continue supporting and going into those inside of prison. So if you're feeling called or urged or led to learn more about that, or if you're trying to find a really cool way to tithe or donate or support, I'm not telling you to not give your money to your local church or ministry or food bank, but there's a lot of people who need to know we love them, that they're not forgotten, and a donation can help them communicate with their sons, daughters, wives, buy shampoo. It's a worthy cause, and I would really ask that you pray about it, and if you're interested, go to notmywillministries.com and reach out to me and look forward to doing prison ministry with you. Thanks, RJ. We'll include everything down in the notes, or if you're watching this via video, you can find it all there, too. We are Seek Go Create here, and we have conversations that people don't have in a lot of other places as you were uh, listening in and viewing here. I appreciate RJ. I want to honor you, not for what you did, but for your identity and who you are and for your vulnerability and sharing that, because I think that's when our hearts are touched. And I believe that our journey here on this earth is to soften our hearts. <laughs> and uh, you've definitely helped Amen. do that. And I know you continue to. So Again, we're Seat Go Create. We've got new episodes every Monday. And until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.